Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. I'm going to be, begin in verse 16 and read down through verse 39. Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. This is the very Word of God. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they took him, they, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? 
Holy Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it testifies of Jesus Christ, the Son, our Savior, the only Savior the world can ever know. We ask that in these next few moments as we continue to hear from your word, that you would prepare our hearts in such a way that we would be wounded and healed, that we would be confronted and disrupted, and that we would actually turn from our self-centered interests and we would have our eyes lifted up to the interests of the king and his kingdom. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would cause us to bring all of our cares, all of our woes, all that troubles us, all of our sins, and we would lay them at the feet of Jesus Christ. We ask for your forgiveness, Heavenly Father, due to even confessing the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as we have just sung, we do pray that our sins would be forgiven. And we know that in Christ, if we believe in him, they are. Grant us the faith to believe that our sins are forgiven. Help us to recognize even the majesty of your own glory this morning. Lord, we are suffering from unbelief. That is our greatest malady. We pray that you would increase our faith, that we would believe that you are able to change our hearts, to change our lives, to change our families, our marriages, our children, our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, this world. You're able to change it in a moment. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of faith. Our, our just, we just don't believe that you're able to do it. So I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us of this sin of unbelief. As we pray for our country, we pray for those leaders that have been elected and that have been raised up and appointed even over us. We ask, Lord, that even as we look on them with such skepticism, we ask, Lord, that you would act and work in this nation, in your secret ways, in your wise plans, that you would work in such a way that many people would have their souls saved. Lord, that's our great desire. Not merely to put a veneer of nice people in the country, but all going to hell. We don't want that. We want people to be saved. So Lord, give us wisdom to know how we ought to testify to the true king, even to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are sick, those who are still struggling with long-term illnesses, or those even at home now that are sick, we ask, Lord, that you would heal them. You're able to. We pray that you would do a work through whatever means. We also know that the great healing is actually through the resurrection of the dead. And so we do thank you, Lord, that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, they have a hope beyond the grave. So give us that kind of focus that we would look beyond the grave even to life with Christ for eternity. Lord, as we hear your word, we pray that you would reorient us once again to you and your glory. We are so caught up in ourselves. Help us to become reacquainted once again with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Come and help us now for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
It's remarkable to think how Jesus made things happen. How disruptive he was when he came on the scene, as we've just been reading in Mark. Uh, Preston Manning, who many of you might know, he is a politician from Alberta here. He gave a, a sealed memorandum to a group of political associates who were visiting Israel. And he told them that when they got to the historic region of Galilee, they were supposed to open this sealed memorandum, and in it was a special assignment. And the special assignment was this. He said, imagine that you have just been parachuted into the Galilee region of Israel to carry out the following special assignment. First, go into the towns and villages around the lake and recruit a team of 12 people. Secondly, persuade them to leave whatever they are doing and join, in, join you in a venture to change themselves, their community, and the world. By formal teaching and example, transform their pursuit of self-interest into a self-sacrificial service to others. Next, equip them to share with others what you will impart to them so that 2,000 years afterwards, more than 1 billion people will profess to be guided in some way by your teachings and example. Fiscal restraints require you to raise your own financial support for your assignment. That's a tough one. Your initial base of operations will be a carpenter's shop in a small town called Nazareth. Getting, getting set up really well here. You have three years to complete this assignment before you must leave the region and entrust the follow-up to your recruits. Well, Manning's point was to illustrate the leadership of Jesus Christ to this political group even to those, some of whom, they're not Christian believers. But for us, when we read the Gospels, when we read about the life of Christ, we can see not only the authority and wisdom of Jesus in his mission, but we actually see the supernatural impact of the advance of Christ's kingdom. It is more than just leadership strategy. It is supernatural in its advance. And I'll tell you what, I think every one of us is suffering from unbelief these days because these are discouraging days, right? Or maybe everything's going swimmingly for you. I don't know. There's so many things that are discouraging today, but we can't forget that God is able to create Great gospel good, great gospel advance, literally ex nihilo, out of nothing. He can create it. But he does so by placing demands on us. He places demands on us, demands that disrupt our lives, that disrupt our preferences. And his demands are are disruptive in such a way. So this morning, as you're hearing his word, as you've been singing, you've been going through the liturgy, the question put to you through all of this is, will you submit to his disruptive demands upon you today? That is what is pressed on you right now. Will you submit to his demands as they are going to turn your world upside down? 
And that is actually what happened in the first century as we have recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. Now we're going to see these various disruptive demands and what also, how, how it all entailed, what, how, how it impacted different groups of people that Jesus interacted with in Mark chapter 1. But that's the question. It's a heart question. It's about your own submission. Will you submit to his demands or not? Or it's like, oh no, sorry, don't, don't, don't mess up my plans, man. I've got, I've got stuff to do. I've got plans. Right? No, no. That is what is being pressed on us this morning. Of course, this, this initial demand comes there in verse 17. You know the context? Sea of Galilee, these guys are fishermen. If you know the, you know the Bible stories, you, you know, sing a little ditty, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. Verse 17, but that's, he starts off, it's a command. It's not a negotiation. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It is a demand. Follow me. Follow me. It is then a personal directive. He is demanding that you follow him. Not follow some abstract philosophy. Not follow some, some set of theological propositions in the abstract. No, no. Follow him. Follow me, he says. And he says, I will make you become fishers of men. This summons is pretty earth-shattering. The problem with many of us, if we have exposure to church life, is that these things become very familiar. Oh yes, fishers of men, this is about evangelism. And it is. I will make you become fishers of men. But what did they do? This is the thing. What happened as Jesus then is going to disrupt and demand that these guys follow him? He's going to disrupt their lives. What's going to happen? Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. So they responded and they left their stuff. They left their livelihood. They left all of their career aspirations. All of their dreams. All of their plans that they would have had. They're fishermen. They're raised up to be fishermen. They thought about fishing all their lives, being a fisherman, how to be a fisherman, what they were going to do as a fisherman, what kind of fisherman they were going to be. And they left it all behind. Many people won't follow Jesus because it's going to disrupt their career plans. But this was absolute, disrupting all of their hopes and dreams that they had had. And they dropped their nets. And they followed him. Very disruptive. Verse 19, And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. Another, another family circle here. Family business. Family fishing outfit. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. They left him. They left their dad. They left their father. Now these are Jewish guys. So is that honoring father and mother? Here Jesus is calling these guys to possibly be breaking the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12. To not honor their father 
Or is it actually to honor their father by following Jesus because that's actually better? It's more important that they follow Jesus than even following their father as a fisherman. See, the call of Jesus was a higher demand. Why do people refuse to follow Jesus? Well, often it's because they've been brought up to believe something else and they don't want to believe anything different than how they were brought up. They don't want to be disrupted. They don't don't want to have their their nice set little lives of what their parents believed and what their grandparents believed. They don't want that disrupted. And so they refuse to follow Jesus when he commands them and demands them to follow him. And it's disruptive. But these first guys, it's amazing. Like, they're basically giving up their earthly inheritance. Right? Right? Because they're walking away from it. They're walking away from their dad. The guys left over, it's the hired men. Not the boys. The boys who would have inherited the whole thing. They're leaving it all behind. And the result is, as they seek to really honor their heavenly father, and really it's the best way to honor their own father, is actually to follow Jesus so that they hopefully then will be able to point their own father to Jesus. That's the thing. When you leave your family behind and you follow Christ, the hope is you in following Christ can then lead them to Christ. But if you don't follow Christ, then you're not going to lead them to Christ. So it's the first step. You have to obey Jesus first. But then, it's not just that they're going to follow Jesus. He gives them a new commission. He gives them that that crazy commission of being fishers of men. Now, I think, like, you know, of course, this is evangelism. They're going to go out and they're going to, you know, cast their nets and bring people in. And this kind of idea seems all very innocent. But when I read that now, in 2023, you know, the question comes up, can, can one person compel another person to have their life disrupted? Are you allowed to do that in our society? Or is that offensive and oppressive? That you're actually going to say, no, no, you need to stop what you're doing and I'm going to compel you that you need to actually get in the net here. And you need to actually be plucked out of your environment and be put into a different environment. Jesus makes them fishers of men, catching men, compelling men. You know, the Puritans and all the Reformed tradition is great for this, you know, so they had to learn what Thomas Boston called the art of man fishing. Or, or what Horatius Bonner, he, he said they need to learn the words for winners of souls, that you're a, a soul winner. People don't talk like that anymore. To be a soul winner we actually, I think today, we recoil at the idea of being fishers of men and Jesus saying unequivocally, follow me, because I think deep down, I think we question whether or not it is right to disrupt people in their lives. A friend of mine who was a pastor here in Calgary, a Syrian guy, Syrian Baptist guy, and he told me about a church in Calgary, evangelical church, who when new Muslim uh, 
arrivals, immigrants to Canada, come to Calgary, they would come and that church would facilitate them getting a house and this sort of thing. But then the question they would ask them is, well, what mosque would you like to attend? What mosque would you like to attend? Well, we don't want to impose ourselves on these Muslim folks. And this Syrian Baptist pastor, Arab pastor, he says, this is crazy. Why aren't evangelical churches wanting to say, no, you should come to our church and hear the gospel? That you need to be disrupted from your life in Islam and you need to believe in the true Christ to disrupt them. That it's a good thing to be a fisher of men. To actually compel people. And yet, today, in many of the churches, and and I think in many of us, in myself, we're reticent to compel people to be disrupted and to change. We question if anyone has the right to disrupt anybody else. We question the morality of it. We question the authority of it. But Jesus, he speaks very forthrightly and he makes his disruptive demands and they are demands that were pressed on them then and they press on us today. He's going to make them fishers of men and they respond and they, no negotiation, they followed him. That's it. No, no qualifications, they just followed. There wasn't like, okay, I've got to get all my affairs in order. No, they followed him. That's the thing. Are we to be fishers of men? Or is it disrupting families? Hmm, sounds bad. No. He calls these first, first disciples, these apostles, but I think all of us to be fishers of men, certainly to follow him. But the second scene that we have then is in verses 21 through 34. This scene switches. It switches to the synagogue. So the synagogue was uh, the Jewish center of worship and teaching in relation to their time in the exile. You think, oh yeah, well they had the temple. Yeah, they'd come back into the land and there'd been a temple built. But while the Jews had been in exile in these foreign countries, when they didn't have the temple access, they, they created these synagogues. It's kind of like you know precursor for almost like the church gathering. And now the synagogue was the place of orthodoxy, the place of faithfulness. It was a place of refuge. It had always been that way when, when the Jews had been in exile in Babylon, for example. Now the synagogue was the place where Judaism was preserved. I mean, you could say the same even to today, synagogues today. Judaism was preserved. It was It was where Judaism was protected from cultural assimilation. You know, it was protected from, for example, the idolatry and the immorality of the Greco-Roman world. That's where it was preserved. So Jesus, we're told in verse 21, he went to the synagogue in Capernaum, and he goes there and he's teaching. Now he's teaching, and verse 22, again, they were astonished at his teaching. It, they were struck by it. What is it about this guy's teaching? Like you would think, they are the orthodox ones. They're the guys that know what teaching's supposed to be. 
What was the reason? Well, he says, for he taught them as one who had what? Authority. He had authority. Exousia. He had authority. He possessed it. Not as the scribes. The scribes, the grammatae, they were these kind of word workers who would dispense the wisdom of commentators and commentators on the commentators. Uh, you know, you know that. That's kind of what, you know, if you look at kind of theology Twitter, that's all it is. It's commenting on the commentators on the commentators, right? You don't actually, don't actually get to the Bible. You just, you know, whoever said what. Yeah, it's not even that funny. It's uh, just weird. Anyways, uh, all of these comments began with the Hebrew Bible. So you start with the Bible, but it's like, you know, modern media, you know, any kind of media, it's reporting on the reporting on the reporting and not the actual events being reported. You know, or that's what I find. Uh, now, Jesus, he could speak in such a way that he, he actually possessed this authority and he possessed it because he was the Son of God. He had it. He, he had authority over all of creation, over all the earth, over heaven, over under the earth, over it all. He had authority over it all. And so then when he speaks, the, te- the people, they're surprised. They're surprised by Jesus' teaching. Now, think of all the things that people might get surprised at in the synagogue this faithful Orthodox synagogue. You can think of it like a little bit like a church service. So they're surprised and astonished by Jesus' teaching. But what they obviously hadn't been too surprised at was that there's demon-possessed people in the synagogue. Like I, I think that would probably be a little bit startling. All these crazy people, basically. Can I say that? Yeah, I think so. If you're demon-possessed, you think you're crazy. So you got this bastion of orthodoxy and faithfulness. It's actually housing demoniacs. And it just shows that the synagogues of the first century were not pure. They weren't redeemed. And instead, they were in need of deliverance themselves. So Jesus was teaching. So he's teaching along. And this is what the Word of God does. When you're teaching... It actually brings stuff out. It brings it to the surface. It draws it out. And the word draws out even, even exposes, in this case, a man. How's he, how's he described? He's a man with an unclean spirit. So he's drawn out into this, into this thing. Verse 24. The, the, the guy, the, the, really the unclean spirit, calls out to Jesus. Verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's an amazing statement. It's recorded in Scripture what a demon would be saying about Jesus. This is is the faith of demons. They could acknowledge so much truth about Jesus, and yet they're fallen they're unsaved, and they're unsavable. The unclean spirit in the man could recognize who Jesus was, know that Jesus was going to judge them successfully, and know even that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One of God. And yet, it, as James says, he's, 
uh, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, James 2.19. So there is this kind of a, a, a a faith that even demons have. They will acknowledge the supremacy of Christ, but they're not believing in him savingly, as it were, believing in him with the sincerity of faith, true faith. But the thing is, Jesus is not going to have demons as his evangelists. He isn't going to have them going around testifying to him. And so Jesus exercises his rights. He exercises his authority. Verse 25, Jesus rebuked him by saying, Be silent and come out of him. So, I mean, again, put it in the scale of where we're at here. Is there anybody, anybody with sincerity, with that real right and authority who can truly on demand speak to someone and call out demons? I, there isn't anybody. I know there's lots of guys on TV and stuff. They talk about all this, all, you know, casting out demons and do all this stuff or, you know, Roman Catholic Church with their, their so-called exorcisms but not like Jesus. Jesus could call out demons on demand because he was Lord over all. And the man convulsed, verse 26, and was delivered from this unclean spirit. And so you can just see, when Jesus is saying, he's saying, be silent and come out of him. This This is kind of the right kind of anger and opposition to evil that the men learned about at the men's breakfast that Gavin was teaching about. This is the right kind of anger. Jesus confronting evil and saying, enough, be quiet, come out of him. And and so it's combo. You see Jesus with great compassion on this man, and yet he's actually going to confront the evil of this demon possession. Now, again, he is kind of messing with this guy's life. He's disrupting his life. Again, maybe I'm looking at it with, you know, 2023 lenses on, and it might seem obvious, but to, to, today, I think someone could argue that the demon-possessed man had a right to keep being demon, demon-possessed. You Maybe you want to say that Jesus was intolerant of DPPs. Well, you demon-possessed people. What right did Jesus have to disrupt and deliver someone from the DPP community? Right? You laugh, but that like that's kind of it, isn't it? Like, do do does he have a right? Does he have authority to deliver anybody from whatever community that is sinful? Does he have that right? Does he have that authority? And that's the question that they were asking themselves, these folks here. Because they're asking themselves, well, what is this? What's going on here? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. See, sadly right now, and I think this is plaguing Christians, 
we actually don't believe that Jesus has the right and authority to deliver people, to deliver them and change them and to bring them out of slavery, the slavery that they had to besetting sin, to all kinds of patterns of behavior, to all kinds of identities, whatever those identities might be, we don't actually believe that Jesus is actually able to bring them out, nor do we think he has the right to. Oh no, Jesus has to leave them kind of where they're at and then just kind of be a helper on the side a little bit. No, no, he's got the right to deliver them. And that's the question for us. Do we believe that Jesus has the right and authority to disrupt and deliver whomever he wills? Or is Jesus so weak that he has to respect these satanic boundaries? Satanic boundaries. We're all caught up in observing satanic boundaries. And Jesus does not have to abide them. He can deliver people out of them. You remember, all of you should be reading Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, that's your homework. You can start reading Pilgrim's Progress. But you remember Apollyon? Apollyon, he meets Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. He accuses Christian of betraying his loyalty to Apollyon and to his birth city, the city of destruction. He makes an accusation of betrayal. And there's a certain sense in which he's right. He did betray Apollyon. But he's like, I've got, I'm serving a better master. I'm, I, I don't want to serve you anymore. I want to be loyal to my new master. It's disruptive, but it's good. You see, Jesus came to take captivity captive and to set the captives free. As John 8.36 30, says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you believe that, though? Do you believe that? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's able to do this. It's disruptive to your personal destiny. It's disruptive to your plans. It's disruptive to your personal identity. It's disruptive to all of that. But Jesus demands bring a liberating deliverance. He actually delivers you out. It's an amazing thing. And that's why these folks were astonished and why we should be astonished and marvel at what Jesus is able to do and has the right to do. So that's, that's a further disruption. But then in uh, verses, verses 29 to 31, we have this, then this other section that deals with Peter's mother-in-law. And this is where every pastor wants to insert, you know, the mother-in-law joke to, of the need to, you know, love your enemies or, or something like that. Um, nobody, yeah, it's not that funny. It's a preacher joke. It's, nobody cares. Um, or maybe, maybe your mother-in-laws are all wonderful. My, my mother-in-law is great, so... She's maybe watching here. So. Um. But it's, it's such, a, it's such a, an intimate picture. 
You know, Jesus is going into a family home, and it's just, it's just like so many of our cares and our problems, isn't it? It's not, it's not the most difficult thing anybody's ever faced, but it's a big deal to them. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. She's, she's, she's in trouble. This is before antibiotics, right? You know, how, how many people here have had a fever in the last year? When you're all here, you know, you've recovered, but, you know, how close to death would you have been without the blessings of these antibiotics and modern medical treatments? She's on the verge of death. She's not just a little under the weather. And, and you, you just see Jesus caring for, for people and simple things. She's sick. And he goes in, and he's going to help her. Now, the other thing you got to, again, just in our modern thought, you can't miss this. Jesus demonstrates this willingness to enter into contaminated, contagious, unclean places. The demon, he was an unclean spirit. It's interesting to catch that. So to deal, for Jesus to deal with his unclean spirit, you would think it would be defiling. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. She's unclean. She's contagious. She's even, you know, potentially ceremonially defiling to Jesus. Jesus enters into this unclean context, and he does it because of his deep compassion. It also shows how pure Jesus is. Don't ever think that Jesus is unpure, impure in any way. He's so pure that he can enter into the uncleanness and he himself is not polluted. He's not polluted by it. It's an amazing thing. That's why he can take your sins on himself and he is not polluted by your sin and yet he can be the sin bearer and receive even the wrath of God on the cross for your sins is because of his pristine purity and cleanness. But notice what Jesus does in verse 31. He came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. It, it's, it might be one of the most tender descriptions of a sort of a resurrection. D- Jesus didn't, didn't just speak the healing into existence. He touched her by the hand, and he lifted her up. It's an amazing thing that Jesus would care enough to do that. And what happens when somebody is delivered like that? When they are delivered in that way, she started serving. Just like the other, the apostles, he says, follow me. And what did they do? They followed. They followed. They served him. And she, she's raised up and she starts serving them. It's an amazing picture. Jesus disrupted her life, no doubt, though. He did disrupt her life. He he disrupted her life. He delivered her. She immediately goes to work. But again, it should seem obvious, but in our day, you know, we kind of have to see this. Jesus didn't leave her in her soon death and then want to speed that along. He didn't want to euthanize her. Right? 
That's how stunning we have to, I, have to bring it, I have to bring it up because there are people then that would then think along those lines. Oh, let's end her suffering. Let's put her to death. But no, he didn't think that the compassion approach was to accelerate her fever and kill her. Instead, he delivered her. This is the power, the authority, and the right that Jesus has even to heal. Of course, what was the result? You have it there in verse 32 and following. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Talk about disruptive to the neighborhood. You've got all these crazy people. I mean, Calgary's a nice city, but there's a lot of crazy people in this town. And you said, well, okay, if Jesus were here, you just kind of like bring them all here, bring them to one doorstep, all the sick people, bring them all there. They're all coming to him because not only did he have the power to heal, he had the right and the authority to do so, to disrupt people's lives. Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Again, this is, this is amazing, just all of these diseases, contagious, this pathogen multiplier, you know, and Jesus heals them. He enters into it all. He heals them. He delivers them, all the while disrupting where they were, disrupting that and bringing them into a new place of healing and wholeness and deliverance. It's just an amazing thing. This, this is then more of a picture of what revival looks like, true awakening, when people's lives are disrupted, when they're changed from where, how they were to then how they are now, and it's different. It's transformed, not just for a moment, not just for a week, but it's transformed for a lifetime. But this is where then, in this narrative, where it really, I, I think, it, it actually really kind of flips you. It strikes me reading it. Because Jesus has dis- been disrupting all of these lives, but then he's going, he's healing, he's delivering, he's doing all these amazing things. And then we're told in verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Well, of course, that sounds all really good. But verse 36, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. What does he mean by that? You've got work to do, Jesus. What are we going to do with all these people? There's all of these needs. Don't you see the needs, Jesus? Everybody is looking for you to come and start meeting the needs. There's needs. They're all lined up outside the doorstep of my mother-in-law's place. There's needs upon needs upon needs. Where are you? And Jesus, he feels the absolute right and confidence and appropriateness that he should steal away, go by himself, 
and to pray. This is an amazing thing because each of us is pressed with the demands of needs. There are needs here in this congregation. There are needs in this city. There are needs in your family. There are needs at your workplace. There are needs that you're inundated with constantly in social media. There are needs everywhere. But the example of Jesus here is in the midst of all of these needs, he actually sees it right to go to a desolate place and to pray. He prays. He looks to God. And because of this, he fulfills his duty that's connected to being alone with God so that he can fulfill his mission. And in so doing, as he sees all of these needs, he's told about these needs, everyone is looking for you. You're on the clock, Jesus. Come on, we need you. Get going. And Jesus has the authority and the right to disappoint people. He has the authority and the right to disappoint people. People write books about it, being disappointed with God. Well, yeah, well, he's got the right to disappoint you, your puny little expectations, your pretensions, your design of how God's supposed to operate. God's supposed to do stuff on my plan, on my timetable. God don't work that way. Samuel Rutherford said, this is just one, one of my favorite quotes, he said, Christ holds no man's stirrup. Now, you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, what it means is, Jesus isn't there so that he's going to hold your stirrup to help you get saddled up onto the horse. He's not there at your beck and call. Oh, Jesus, come on, I need you to do stuff for me right now. Isn't that how you pray? Ignore him most of the time until something desperate. Then I'm like, just like the genie in the bottle. Where are you, Jesus? I need my three wishes now. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And what does he say, verse 38? He said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He's like, I'm actually not even going to go back there. You're wanting me to go back there? I'm not even going back there. I'm moving on. Think. All of these, all of these needs. All of these needs. And yet Jesus, he's going to disappoint everybody and he's actually going to move on. He's going to move on. He's going to go to the nearby villages. What does he need to do? He's not there strictly to heal and deliver demons. He's actually coming to preach. It's because the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom is actually what is needed. It's not enough to be healed physically. It's not enough to have a demon taken out of you in a moment if you're still then going to go to hell because you won't believe the gospel. People are caught up worried about physical 
deliverances, physical support, physical provision, and they forget about the soul. And Jesus knows. These nearby villages, they need to hear the gospel. It would be no good for him to just stay there, trying to meet all of these needs, and never going and sharing the gospel throughout Judea. That's what he came for. That was his mission. That was, that's why he came. So it's remarkable that he's willing to disappoint people. Jesus knew that his duty was not in meeting needs. His duty was to seek God. To seek God. And he does so by prayer. You see his example of solitude. His example, we could call it the prayer closet or the sweet hour of prayer or, you know, being wet with the midnight dew, you know, having, having the siege engine against the Almighty, as George Herbert called it, calling it reverse thunder, spending time in prayer with God because that is your duty, is to seek God. So he does his duty. And when... When you do your duty to God, when you seek God, when you fall, when you obey, you're going to disappoint people. Because you're seeking God and you're not fussing about them. Jesus disappointed the people who were looking for Him. He disappointed people who wanted Him to stay in Capernaum forever as their resident healer. I don't want anybody else to have Jesus. There's too many needs here. I want him to stay here and just work for us. Be our own private little guru. But he was on a mission because he had a duty to God. And that's why then it was disruptive. Even to the lives that he had been helping, he had disrupted their lives by then not staying and moving on preaching his message. It says, verse 39, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. He never would have been able to help those other people if he just stayed in Capernaum. He never, you know, they, they wouldn't have got any help. And Jesus would have been reduced to just, just some you know, local miracle worker. That's all he is. But no. Jesus disrupted all those expectations. So what does this mean? Just trying to bring it together. We've seen this, these themes of discipleship, of deliverance and duty. And this is a section that has illustrated what you've seen. It's repeated in Mark's Gospel. It is the authority of Jesus Christ. And in an anti-authority age... Gavin mentioned it in his talk at Men's Breakfast as well. There's this anti-authority age that we actually don't even think that Jesus has the authority he claims to have. We think that he has to find some type of a negotiated space in our society. Because he doesn't have the right to speak into it, to make demands, to disrupt. We don't think he does. We think that he's he somehow needs better public relations to kind of persuade and get in there. No, he, he has this authority. The term authority is repeated throughout Mark's gospel. His authority towards you obligates you 
It obligates you. His authority will actually deliver you. He has the authority to deliver you. Some people think, I just don't feel like my sins are forgiven. Well, if if he has said they're forgiven, do you believe he has the authority to forgive your sins or not? He does. Does he? Okay, just checking. Because I don't know, because I know there's lots of people here that go around, they act like Jesus hasn't forgiven their sins. Because then there's, I know, because it keeps self-atoning for their sins. No, no, if he's got the authority and he, he has that right and he has forgiven your sins, then you are forgiven. And if he has the authority to forgive and deliver you, his authority then commissions you. And if he has sent you out, like the apostles, like those first disciples, as like fishers of men, if he has authoritatively commissioned you to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if he's giving you that, if he has authoritatively done that, then why do you hedge? Why do I hedge? Why do we hesitate? As if, well, I don't know if I can speak into this situation or not. I don't know if I actually have a right to disrupt somebody's life and tell them that they are on the wrong path. I somehow have to find a negotiated space here. No. He has given you, it's His authority, but by His authority, He's commissioned you to then speak and to declare and tell others, hey, you need to follow Him straight up. But when you heed his authority, I'm going to tell you, this is it's serious like cancer. When you heed his authority, he will lead you in such a way to disrupt some, to bla- display service to others, and to dis- disappoint many. You're, you're going to disrupt some, you're going to serve others, and you're going to disappoint many. Some of you have heard me tell the story. It's just my own personal experience with a, with a little devotional and how significant it was when I read Oswald Chambers, Up Boys for His Highest. Some of you are familiar with it. And, and in that, he just made the observation about Simon of Cyrene. You know the story about Simon of Cyrene? Simon of Cyrene was conscripted to carry the cross of Jesus when Jesus was carrying his cross to be crucified at Calvary. Jesus evidently could not keep carrying it. Physically, he could not keep hauling the log. And so this Jew from Cyrene gets conscripted to go touch this defiling cross, ceremonially defiling, and be associated then forever with this criminal Jesus, or at least how he was perceived. And Simon of Cyrene picks up the cross and does it and goes along. Now, the thing is, though, Jesus at that point, Jesus didn't stop like many of us would do. Jesus didn't stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want Simon to be put out because of my obedience. This is my thing. Sure, I, I can carry my cross, but I don't want anybody else to be inconvenienced. I don't want his life to be disruptive. I don't want him to be scorned or mocked because of association with me. I don't want anybody else to have a hard time because I'm going to be obedient. 
And in the little devotional, the, the point made is your obedience will cost others something. Your obedience will disrupt others' lives. It will cost you, sure, but it will cost others. And some of us are just un... I wasn't here for the class, but you had fear of man, didn't you, just this morning in Sunday school? You're so concerned with the fear of man. Well, I don't want them to think badly of me because of my obedience to Jesus. No, your obedience will cost other people something, and it disrupts their lives. So you've got to ask, who in your life, I'm thinking, think of a name, who has been disappointed by your obedience to Jesus? Is it your spouse? Your boss? Your parents? Your peers? Your boyfriend? Your girlfriend? Your professor? Who has been disappointed because you are heeding Jesus? Or, conversely, who are you afraid to disappoint because of Jesus' call on your life? You're afraid what your parents are going to think. You're afraid what your boyfriend or girlfriend's going to think. You're afraid what your spouse will think or what your boss will think or what some anonymous Facebook friend might think. Right? You don't even know these people. But the question is, Are you willing, nevertheless, to heed the disruptive demands of Jesus and to follow the apostolic example and become fishers of men? And it's going to mean that you will disrupt lives, you will disappoint many, but it is infinitely better to be caught by Christ than to swim with the damned. Jesus' demands on you are simply this. He says, follow Christ me and he says he says if you follow him and you trust him he will disrupt your life but it will be bringing you then great joy john piper he had this quote he said listen to these demands from jesus piper says you must be born again repent come to me Believe in me, love me, listen to me, and abide in me. When these demands are seen for what they really are, they turn the absolute authority of Jesus into a treasure chest of holy joy. A treasure chest of holy joy. That's what it becomes when you respond to the absolute authority of Jesus. But the question is, do you think this authoritative Christ is good? Does he desire your good? Does he want to give you a treasure chest of holy joy? It'll disrupt you. It'll disrupt you, but, but do you want the treasure chest of holy joy? Friends, that is what we need today. We need Jesus to disrupt our nation because the demand of Jesus is upon us all. And if we respond to his authority, if we were to do that, then we would get even the joy of true salvation. That is what we gain. So let let Jesus make demands on us. Let him disrupt us, but let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in him. Let's pray together.
Almighty God, I ask that you would help us to believe, to believe, to put our faith in you, to trust in your Son, to be filled with your Spirit, and to have the holy joy that comes even from such a deliverance. Disrupt us, I pray, for ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in new worship. What a happy disruption to be able to say it is well with my soul. I just want to invite anybody who's a newcomer to be able to come down where our newcomers lunch downstairs. Uh, my wife and I will be down there to talk about the church and answer some questions. But just know you, you don't want to leave here without, without dealing with God. If you've been disrupted in any way, don't leave here and go back to just the same old thing. You need to seek the Lord and, and, and seek out help, seek, seek out counsel here to seek the Lord today because His demand is upon you. And, and the hope is that we can then look towards the Lord, even seeing how, how awesome He is. Even We have the picture in the book of Revelation of this, this question, looking to see who has this authority, who is, who is worthy enough for all of our devotion and praise and we're told, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven and or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He'll disrupt you, but there's a treasure chest of joy that he offers, and he alone is worthy because he has the authority. His demand is upon you. Let him disrupt you today. Go in peace.